Welcome back to Jonah 3, 5 through 10, and this is uh, part two, and let's uh, open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word, and we just pray you would make it come alive to us today, and that you would just um, help us to apply it to our lives, that we would be a changed people for your glory, and what we know not teach us, and what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, Lord, for Jesus' sake, amen. Okay, um, we are going to start out by going over the words of just as I am. And um, because I don't have a class and I don't have a voice, I'm not going to sing it. So I'm going to just say the words to you, just as I am without one plea, but that thou blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me to come, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, fighting and fears within and without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind. Yea, all I need in thee I find, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Okay, Jonah 3, 5 through 10 says, The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued in proclamation, a proclamation in Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast Herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God, and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent, and with compassion turn from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion, and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Genesis 3, 5-10. As we have discovered, the words of Jonah spread rapidly through every quarter of greater Nineveh. The Ninevites accepted his message and believed God. As the prophet preached doom, the people ironically changed. Earlier, Jonah had repented, and now these Gentiles repented. And as we discovered, as outward symbols of inward contrition and humiliation, they fasted and they put on sackcloth. People in every social strata, from the greatest to the least, hoped that God might turn from his anger and spare them. When news reached the king of Nineveh, he too joined the greatest and the lowest in putting on mourning garments. The king of Nineveh would also have been the king of the entire Assyrian Empire, one of the most powerful men on earth. Amazingly and very unintentionally, Jonah became the most effective preacher ever. What a wonderful testimony of God's grace reaching to the ends of the world. The Ninevites repented and God's glorious compassion shone brighter than the sun. Surely this had to be one of the greatest spiritual revivals in all of history. Yet Jonah seems so disinterested, so cool. 
in it all, so blasé, so uncaring of the salvation of these souls. The Bible gives no reason for the king to have listened to Jonah except for the power of God's message on the people and on his own heart. The king's remorse led him and his nobles to issue a royal decree by making the fast official and issuing an edict ordering the people to humble themselves, cry out to God, and turn from their evil ways, quite literally caused a cry for help to go out. The king thus called on all citizens to join him in a national cry for help. This was a matter of life and death. The decree affected every living thing in the land. Even the animals were included in the activities by wearing sackcloth and abstaining from food and drink. The extent of their repentance is shown by their extent of their fast. Indeed, humans and animals joined in refusing to eat or drink as they cried out to God. The decree instructed the people to fast, to wear sackcloth, to call urgently on God, and to relinquish their wickedness. Again, from the king to the animals, no one was allowed to eat or drink and were all draped with sackcloth. This practice was not strange in the Near East. It was simply another sign of the people's remorse. The king's purpose in the decree is discovered in the who knows, as it hints at the possibility of God's withdrawing his threat and staying his all-powerful hand. By their contrition, the king hoped that Jonah's God would relent of his judgment and turn from his burning anger, thereby sparing the city and their lives. This fear of judgment from God is jaw-dropping startling because the Assyrians were a cruel and violent nation who feared no one. Yet the king credited God with having the power to change all of this. If the Lord did not change and relent and change his way, then Assyria would have had no hope. And the king of Assyria appeared to be fully aware of this. The wording, who knows, is reminiscent of King David's words. When the Lord struck the child he and Bathsheba had had through their adulterous relationship, and the child became very ill. We find in 2 Samuel 12, 19-23, David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After that, he washed, put on clothes and lotions, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting like this? Why, why, when the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. 2 Samuel 12, 19-23 While the king of Nineveh's edict had included the passive wearing of sackcloth and not eating or drinking, it also called for positive action. Everyone was to call urgently on God, yet praying desperately was not enough. Everyone must turn from their wicked ways as well, which was the Hebrew way for calling for repentance. It remains God's way of calling for repentance still. 
The king specified it as turning from their violence, meaning their repression, violence, wickedness, wrong, unrighteous gain. This may refer to a serious war practices by which they treated and conquered nations and captive prisoners with great cruelty, as we have already discussed. His hope was that the people's actions would bring a divine reaction of compassion from God and that he would relent and turn from his burning anger, staying his hand so that they would not perish. Interestingly, in this, the king of Assyria credited God with the power to change things. Again, the king knew if the Lord did not change his decision, then Assyria would have no hope. The king points to the one high, all-powerful God in control of his fate. Had the Assyrian king, like the pagan sailors, come to recognize the exclusive claim to deity made by Israel's God, to loathe my own sin, to humble myself on account of my own personal faults, and to endeavor in the sight of God to renounce every false way is a work something more than human nature, Spurgeon writes. Remember when Jonah had been in the dire straits, he recalled the promise concerning Solomon's temple, looking toward the temple and calling out to God for help. Also included in Solomon's prayer was a promise for people outside the nation of Israel, and that would have included the Ninevites. We find in 2 Chronicles 6, 32-33, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people, Israel, and, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Second Chronicles 6, 32-33. Second Chronicles 7, 13-16 also states, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes and will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Second Chronicles 7, 13 through 16. Jonah knew this promise, and perhaps it was the basis for the whole awakening. Like the sailors in the storm, the Ninevites did not want to perish. Indeed, that is what witnessing is all about the turning of perishing souls to the God who can save them. The very familiar verse in John three sixteen through 18 states, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. John three sixteen through 18. Their fasting and their praying and their humbling of themselves before God 
sent a message to heaven. But the people of Nineveh had no assurance that they would be saved. They hoped that God's great compassion would move him to change his plan and spare their city. Once again, how did they know that the God of the Hebrews was a merciful and compassionate God? Jonah's message did not seem to leave any room for discussion. God will destroy Nineveh. It seems inevitable and decisive. Jonah's message did not seem to leave any room for repentance. It was a message of judgment. Perhaps Jonah had also told them of the Lord's compassion, grace, and mercy, for this was a doctrine he himself believed. Jonah 4, 2 tells us, He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah 4, 1 through 2. When God saw how the Ninevites turned from their wicked ways, he relented and changed his course from destroying them. No imminent judgment for Nineveh. No destruction. It was God's gracious response to man's change of heart. God is utterly consistent with himself. It only appears that he is changing his mind. The Bible uses human analogies to reveal the divine character of God. The prophet tells us in Jeremiah 18, 1-10, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as he seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that in a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended for it. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 10. As an evidence of his mercy to the Ninevites, God had sent Jonah to them, told him what to proclaim to them, and to open the hearts of a vast population. Also, seeing their repentant action, God relented of his threat of destruction. He had spared Jonah, and now he spared Nineveh as well. God's mercies are always unmerited. His grace is never earned. The prophet Jeremiah tells us in Lamentations 3, 21 through 26, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Lamentations 3, 21 through 26. 
Um, I'm going to read now an article by Randy Alcorn on Does Grace um, Still Amaze You? Years ago, I spoke at a large event where the vocalist sang out one of my favorite songs, Amazing Grace. But I was taken aback when I heard the first line, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. <sighs> Except for that they used the word soul. The word soul was substituted for the word wretch. Why? Because the word wretch is considered by some to be demeaning the human beings. I couldn't help but think of John Newton, the writer of the song, he was an immoral slave trader and blasphemer, a man who knew he, had, he was a wretch and who had wept over the depth of his depravity. Only because he understood that fact so profoundly could he then understand why God's grace to him was so utterly amazing, and hence the immortal song he bequeathed to all of us. Grace doesn't minimize or ignore the awful reality of our sin. Grace emphasizes the depths of sin by virtue of the unthinkable price paid to redeem us from it. Paul said if men were good enough, then Christ died for no purpose in Galatians 2.21. If we don't come to grips with the hideous reality of our own sin, God's grace won't ever seem amazing to us. God's word tells us that Christ died for utterly unworthy people. The fact that he died for us is never given in Scripture as a proof of our value as wonderful people. Rather, it is a demonstration of his unfathomable and unearned love. So unfathomable that he would die for rotten people, wretches like you and me, to free us from our sins. Because grace is so incomprehensible to us, we instinctively smuggle in conditions so we won't look so bad. And God's offer won't seem so counterintuitive. By the time we're done qualifying the gospel, we're no longer unworthy or powerless. We're no longer wretches, and grace is no longer grace. The worst thing we can teach people is that they're good without Jesus. The truth is, God doesn't offer grace to good people any more than doctors offer life-saving surgery to healthy people. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our Lord also said to the thirsty, I will give them from springs of water of life without payment, without cost to us, but as unimaginable cost to himself, a cost that will be visible for eternity as we behold his nail-scarred hands and feet. Bonhoeffer was right. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. You and I weren't merely sick in our sins. We were dead in our sins. That means I'm not just unworthy of salvation. I'm utterly incapable of earning it. Corpses can't raise themselves from the grave. What a relief to realize that my salvation is completely the result of God's grace. It cannot be earned by good works. True grace recognizes and deals with sin in the most radical and painful way, Christ's redemption. There's only one requirement for enjoying God's grace, being broken and knowing it. That's why Jesus said, happier of those who know they are spiritually poor, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. 
Our justification by faith in Christ satisfied the demands of God's holiness by exchanging our sins for Christ's righteousness. Now we're clothed in a beautiful robe of righteousness. When Jesus saves us, we become new creatures in him. Now we can draw upon God's power to overcome evil. We start seeing sin for what it really is, bondage, not freedom. The old summary is correct. God's children have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin, and we will be saved from the presence of sin. Justification, sanctification, glorification are all grounded solidly in exactly the same place. God's grace. The grace of Jesus isn't an add-on or makeover that enhances our lives. It causes a radical transformation from being sin-enslaved to being righteousness-liberated. Paul writes of the life-transforming and sin-overcoming power of grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Don't ever tell yourself you may as well go ahead and sin since God will forgive you. This cheapens grace. Grace that trivializes sin is not true grace. Paul makes that clear. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? John Piper says grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. So while God forgives when we sincerely confess our sins, we prove that sincerity by taking necessary steps to avoid the temptation. As Jesus said, you can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they behave. No sin is small because it crucified our Savior. Sin matters. Yet grace has power over sin, offering not only forgiveness, but also transformed character. Every sin pales in comparison to God's grace to us in Christ. There is, is one sense in which God's grace is unconditional. We don't deserve it. Yet in his kindness, he offers it to us. But in another sense, it is conditional, in that in order to receive it, we must repent ask forgiveness, and place our faith in Him. This is a paradox, an apparent but not actual contradiction. If we see God as the one who does the work of convicting us and drawing us to repentance, this helps. We did not merit salvation. But even if we fail to understand this paradox of conditional and unconditional grace, I think God calls upon us to believe it and live in it. Sinclair Ferguson says, The spiritual life is lived between two polarities, our sin and God's grace. The discovery of the former brings us to seek the latter. The work of the later, latter illuminates the depth of the former and causes us to seek yet more grace. When we're acutely aware of our own sins and exemplify God's good news of happiness, will do so not with a spirit of superiority, but with the contagious excitement of a sinner saved by grace. One person rescued from starvation, sharing bountiful food and drink with others. We're just another beggar, we're just a beggar showing where other beggars go 
to get food. We'll face each day and each person we see with humility, knowing that we too are desperately in need of God's grace. Grace is the grand and only resource for us all. It is the basis of our salvation, the basis of a life of practical godliness, and the basis of those imperishable hopes which animate us amid the trials and conflicts of this sin-stricken world. May we cherish a deeper sense of grace and more ardent desire for glory. C.S. McIntosh. God had announced his sentence on a guilty people and declared the punishment they must endure because of their guilt. The statement that God relented sometimes designated a change of his purported course of action based upon man's change of heart, Jonah 3.10. This does not mean that the exercise of God's sovereign will is contingent upon man's behavior. The Lord is not whimsical or fickle. God is consistent. He is morally bound not to change his stance if man continues to travel on an evil path. Yet if man turns from his wicked ways, God in his mercy, graciousness, in withholding judgment, though it may appear to men that God's purpose has changed, According to God's perspective, nothing has changed. God's word is a message on a mission. He is seeking to save the lost and to equip them with the power to live rightly. Scripture states of Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. When his word accomplishes its mission so that the people respond to it in the way God desires, then he does not consider himself bound to carry out his word, albeit he is never taken by surprise, and all his actions are motivated by mercy, grace, and love. Prayer, repentance, a change of attitudes and actions move God's hand. He responds. Yet repentance is never a work to be rewarded. It is God's mercy and grace that is to be lauded. Nineveh's repentance delayed God's destruction of that city for about 150 years. I pray this all the time for our own country that God would relent from sending the calamity that is due to come if we don't change from our ways. The, the people evidently fell into sin again so that later their city was destroyed in 612 B.C. When God threatened punishment, he provided a dark backdrop on which to catch most vividly his forgiving mercies. This emphasized his grace most forcefully to the sinner's hearts. God's readiness to have compassion on a wicked but repentant people and his withholding his threatened destruction showed Israel that her coming judgment at God's hand was not because of his unwillingness to forgive them, but because of her impotence. How deep was the spiritual experience of the people of Nineveh? If repentance and faith are the basic conditions of salvation, as stated in Acts 20, 21. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and to have faith in our Lord Jesus. Then we have reason to believe that they are accepted by God. 
For the people of Nineveh repented and had faith in God. The fact that Jesus used the Ninevites to shame the unbelieving Jews of his day is further evidence that their response to Jonah's ministry was sincere, albeit perhaps not all of them lasting. Many have wondered why the Assyrians would have responded to a Jewish prophet. The reason for this, according to rabbinic traditions, is that Nineveh had heard of Jonah's miraculous deliverance from the belly of the fish. This is very probable, since Jesus said that Jonah was a sign or a miracle to the Ninevites. He further explained that the sign of the prophet Jonah was the only sign that would be given the nation of Israel concerning himself, stating that just as Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of the fish, he himself would spend time in the heart of the earth or the grave. Unlike the Ninevites, sadly, the Jews rejected Christ, even though he performed many signs and miracles. Let's pray. Father, help us not to be deluded by the world. Give us eyes to see your truth. Give us um, hearts to understand your heart, Lord, that you would love us so much that you would send your son to die for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. We just ask that you would be glorified through us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Beth from Sharing Bread Ministries. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the written permission from Sharing Bread. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Sharing Bread. For additional information on Sharing Bread, you can look for us online at sharing-bread.com. You can find Bible teachings for adults and kids, links to podcasts and other resources to help you grow in the Lord. Again, that website is sharing-bread.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in touch with Sharing Bread. Sharing Bread laboring to grow up families in Christ.